0: Have you ever felt trapped in a high-paying job, chained to a life that's slowly slipping away? Day after day, the same routine, the same unfulfilling work, and the constant longing for something more? If you're nodding your head right now, feeling that weight on your shoulders, then this is the podcast you've been waiting for. Welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show. I'm Brian O'Neill, and I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. I've been in that prison too, sacrificing precious moments with my family, feeling the regret and resentment build up inside. But guess what? There is a way out and together we're going to break free. Each episode, we'll dive deep into the stories of incredible individuals who have successfully made their escape, who have turned their dreams into reality, and who now live lives filled with purpose, joy, and abundance. But we won't stop at inspiration alone. We'll equip you with the tools, strategies, and mindset shifts needed to break through the barriers that have held you back for far too long. Together, we'll ignite your entrepreneurial spirit and unleash the business genius within you. It's time to take action, to shatter the chains that bind you, and to embrace a future filled with unlimited possibilities. The W2 Prison Break Show is your key to unlock the door to a life of purpose, fulfillment, and success. I invite you to join me on this transformative journey. Subscribe now to the W2 Prison Break Show and let's embark together on the path to freedom. Remember, it's never too late to break free and live the life you've always dreamed of. Hey there, friends, welcome back. Another episode of the W2 Prison Break show. I'm super glad that you've decided to tune in today. If you're a repeating listener, I'm super grateful for your loyalty. I know you listen to other shows maybe, but I'm just happy that you listen to the show. And if this is your first episode, welcome to the show. Happy to have you. And we do have a super awesome guest for you today. I know, I know, I say it every single week, but I'm telling you, this is going to be a great one. This is a great one. And before we get into the guests and before we get into the episode, I just have to ask if you like the show, if you've been watching the show on YouTube or listening to it, the only thing I ask is to just please share spread the word, you know, the mission, you know, the mission that's for me, for us to inspire and educate 1 million people to quit their W2 jobs, start the business of their dreams by the end of 2026. I need your help. If you believe in this, if you want to get behind that movement, please share the show leave a rating leave a review it just helps us reach the million people we got a long way to go and i'm committed to getting there okay so today we are talking to he's a mentor of mine and i've worked with this gentleman for years and he's helped me he's one of the reasons that i have this podcast okay his name is steven westner and he is the ceo of predictive roi he's had that business since 2009 and he teaches people how to become an authority in their space Okay, and you're just going to hear a lot of awesomeness in this episode. He's got a ton of insight. I just love speaking to him, and we're just not going to delay it any further. Let's get right to the show. Stephen Wester, welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show. I'm so excited about this episode.
1: I'm excited too, and thanks, Brian, very much for the invitation and also your patience. I know I. Bounced my schedule around on you a couple of times, but I appreciate your graciousness as always. So looking forward to having the conversation.
0: Yeah, same here and no worries there. Stephen, we were chatting a little bit offline, and I'm really excited for the listeners to hear what we're going to be talking about today from an authority standpoint. Mm -hmm. I literally have a flag in my front yard. I have planted my flag of authority. You might be interested to see that. I'm kidding, but You have taught me a lot about the topic we're going to speak on today. It's really helped me. So thank you again for all of your insight. I just know the listeners are going to get some tremendous nuggets out of this episode today. However, before we get into your business and what you do Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. and who you're helping and the clients that you're serving, we always love to hear what were you doing before? What was the Mm -hmm. W2? What was the job? And take us maybe a little bit back and how you ended up where you are now.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I might, I guess we'll see how this unfolds, but maybe share something that I've never shared before during interview because it relates here. So Predictive ROI is actually my fourth business. And so, you know, have had W2 jobs, you know, employment in between those various businesses that I've had. Predictive is the one that I've owned the longest. So we're about right ahead into our 14th year. So predictive has been around for a while now, but before predictive, so predictive officially started in 2009. Before predictive, I worked for the University of Wisconsin and I worked for the UW system. My home campus was UW La Crosse. So here in La Crosse, Wisconsin. But anyway, in that role, I was in charge of all non-credit business education programs on campus. And then after my first couple of books came out and that kind of stuff, so I wrote my search engine optimization book while I was at the university, as well as my social media book. And when those books came out, then I had an opportunity to teach actually at many of the UW campuses, including UW-Madison at the School of Business. Hmm. So you know, I was teaching every semester at UW-Madison and then a few of the other campuses. So sort of where the kind of entrepreneurial thing happened you know, at the university was after my first couple of books came out, I started receiving, actually when my first book came out, I started receiving some opportunities to do consulting. And for a while, I'm like, yeah, nah, thanks, but no thanks. I just didn't want to deal with any of sort of the bureaucratic red tape on campus. I just didn't want the hassle. I mean, it sounded fun, but I just didn't want to do it. And then the book ended up being featured in Inc. Magazine. Which was a lovely surprise. And there just started being some other things. And then the opportunities started getting a little bit more interesting. And so I did one. And afterwards, I'm like, holy bananas, that was awesome. It really just kind of lit a fire and it was a lot of fun. And then at the same time, maybe a little bit before that, I was going through sort of the competition, if you will for the director spot in the department that I was working at at the university. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when I didn't receive that, when I didn't receive that appointment, I was really disappointed. I was pretty heartbroken actually, because I was, it sounds arrogant to say sort of the heir apparent, but I was in the department. Uh, The person who was retiring had been my mentor for several years, lovely human being. And when I didn't get that appointment, I was crushed. And then when somebody else did, after like a brand new search and screen, and someone else had received the appointment, not at the university, not one of our peers or anything like that, I thought, okay, my runway at the university is probably quite limited. And so I need to find something different. And the writing was on the wall that it could be predictive but I needed to test it. I needed to see where to really have some legs. And so I started doing a few additional things. And, you know, a couple of years later I left, I left the university after six years and really loved my time at the university, but it was just time for me to leave and do something different. And that became predictive. And that was a decade plus ago.
0: Excellent. Did not know that about you. So thank you for sharing. I'm glad I asked the question. So that was really your kind of your defining moment was that you didn't get the appointment and you saw the writing on the wall. It's like, well, I'm either going to stay here and wait for them to let me go, or I'm going to do something about it. Do I have that correct? Yeah.
1: And I knew that I could have stayed at the university in the role that I was in Mm -hmm. for probably 20 more years. And I could have retired from that position, but I didn't want to do that. Like, I didn't want to stay in a position that I felt that I had you know, really knew the ins and outs and I knew it pretty well and I was good at it and all of that kind of stuff. I didn't want to stay in that role for another 20 years. And I knew that the person who had now taken the director role, like people stay in that role for the balance of their career. So I knew that I wasn't going to outlast that person and then take that role after that person retired. So that's why the writing was pretty clear on the wall. I wasn't going to stay in that role and not grow I wasn't going to be able to move into the position that I had just competed for and failed because that seat was going to be occupied for quite a while. So it was either move to a different university or start something on my own. And then it just became pretty attractive to start something. It was a big risk to leave the university, but it was a calculated one, but it was still pretty nerve wracking.
0: Always, always. But as you said, calculated, you clearly had a plan. It's not something you just did. You made a decision overnight and packed up your office and left. It, was, it <laughs> was calculated, as you say. Well, you talked about books, right? And I know we're going to talk about this. You've written a couple books before you started your business, before you started Predictive. Mm-hmm. I think it was you that maybe said this. And if it's not, I apologize. But I think it's your belief, and it is mine too, that everybody has a book and maybe multiple books inside of mm-hmm. them. They just don't know how to get it out. Do you have any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I think that that probably could be true. And I think for some, the difficulty is like how to get it out, which like how to extract the book. And that's probably, you know, multiple shows to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But one thing is for certain, you know, having been in this space for a really long time, you could run a red thread through all the things that I've done, either W2 or the businesses that I've owned. And it operates around this sort of agency experience and thought leadership and content and teaching and all of that that I think one thing that is true across people is that they do have a story, they can be helpful, they do get gratification from teaching and sharing and so forth. I'm excluding people like narcissists and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like good-natured, the typical sort of business owner, that kind of stuff. They wanna teach, they wanna be helpful, they wanna be meaningful, they wanna maybe leave a legacy and all of that kind of stuff. And if that's true, and there probably is a book in there, being able to pull it out and turn it into something that people can benefit from you know that's another challenge or series of challenges
0: as you said multiple shows a lot of people get stuck there i feel like i have one in me i have an idea where to start but you know again it's not the easiest thing to do okay good segue into what we're doing here we're going to talk about today which is authority planning your flag of authority i love that term mm. and this is what you specialize in at predictive roi you've helped me you've helped countless other people and business owners so why is this important? Why is planning your flag of authority? I guess maybe define that first. And then why is it important, especially in today's day and age?
1: I think it's important for a number of different reasons that we'll get to. But first, what is it? Sort of give kind of the technical, what is it? Sort of the technical recipe behind it. And then maybe how it shows up to your prospective client. So the technical or recipe, the three ingredient recipe that my team and I talk about often. And when, so Drew McClellan, Agency Management Institute, so CEO of Agency Management Institute, when he and I decided to write the book, Sell With Authority, the recipe that we included was that in order to truly plant your flag, you need to do three things. One, you need to get narrow. You need to niche. Now, typically when somebody hears the word niche, that means, oh, geez, I'm going to work with uh, capital manufacturers of aluminum extruded processing equipment for the rest of my life. No, it certainly could be industry, but it also could be audience. It could also be a superpower. It could also be a problem that you solve better than anybody else. So there's four different ingredients in niche in that recipe. You can build a niche around any one of those ingredients, but the cookie tastes better as you add more ingredients. So the first overall ingredient to planting your flag of authority is get really clear on the niche. The second ingredient is you got to create cornerstone content. You got to create big, meaty pieces of content. So just like you're doing, Brian, with all of these podcast episodes, I mean, you obviously know, but each of your episodes is your cornerstone content, right? So you have to stand in front of your audience or maybe no audience yet, and you have to teach and share and create meaty pieces of helpful content that actually benefit your audience and not self-aggrandizing. And then the third ingredient in the overall recipe for planting a flag is... You can't be a one trick pony you have a podcast you also have social channels you also have an email list you also have a chapter in a book you know the book that you wrote alongside chris prefontaine from smart real estate coach you have lots of different pieces of content it's not like you do your podcast record your episodes and then you don't do anything if nobody goes to apple podcasts they don't hear how smart you are right niche cornerstone content don't be a one trick pony and you got to slice and dice your content. Okay. Those are the three sort of technical ingredients, if you will, to planting your flag. Why does it matter is because then your prospective client, as well as your client, your existing clients, you show up in a completely different way. In looking at research that either we've done on an annual basis, or if your audience wants to go to Edelman, They do an annual study. It's called the trust barometer. And they've been doing it now for like the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And you can look at the data set. The people who are building the least amounts of trust and empathy with their audience are celebrities with millions of social media followers. The people who are building the most trust and empathy, the position of authority with their audience are the industry experts and people who look like them not literally, but shared experiences and so forth. So when you plant your flag of authority and when you go narrow and you create content and you slice and dice it and you're not a one-trick pony, what you're doing is you're sharing your expertise. When people hear that, they say, oh, yeah, I know a little bit about Brian. Or, oh, yeah, I know a little bit about Tom or Sarah or Jeff or Joe or whatever because I read the thing or I listened to that thing or whatever. And how you show up as an expert in how you take your content and build rapport through it and demonstrate experiences, then you become their person. There's no one else on the list, maybe even in the consideration set. Mm. So that's why authority is important.
0: Hey there, back to the episode in just a moment. Are you a homeowner in the Chicagoland area who's struggling to sell your home or even own nothing and looking to maximize your price before the market slides? Are you tired of the traditional home selling process that takes months and costs you thousands in fees and repairs? Whether you're facing foreclosure, going through a divorce, or simply need to sell your home fast, WeBuyHousesChicago.org can help. We've been buying homes in Chicago since 2019, and we specialize in helping sellers who are stuck. Unlike traditional real estate buyers, we buy homes as is and can close in as little as seven days. No repairs, no inspections, and no fees. Just a fast, hassle-free sale. Let WeBuyHousesChicago.org help you sell your home and move on to the next phase of your life. Call or text us today at 312-500-6121. If you know someone who is struggling to sell their home or simply just wants top price, please share this message with them. As a listener of the W2 Prison Break Show, WeBuyHouseOfChicago.org will pay you for your referral. If you send us a referral and we buy their house, we will pay you a $1,000 referral fee. Simply have your referral mentioned, the W2 Prison Break Show. Let's get back to the show. I love that. And I remember too, I chuckled when you said get narrow on your niche because I remember we've known each other for several years. The first time that you, and it was Chris, tried to get me to niche down in my real estate business, how you guys are out of your minds. Yeah, I'm not doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took a little bit of convincing, a little bit, not a lot. But once I did that, man, did my business take off because I Mm -hmm. got super clear on who it is that I wanted to serve and I started to attract them and I started to do more real estate deals and, you know, the rest is history.
1: Hang on a second. How did you get past it?
0: How did I get past the casting of the wide net and narrowing down? Yeah, it was.
1: Well, and how did you get past the block of, yeah, I'm not doing that.
0: So how did you get past it? Working with the two of you on multiple sessions and really getting clear on, hey, what it is I had already done and who I wanted to serve. Like that was really what it was. Like, Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Who am I here to serve? Who am I here to help? Mm-hmm. Versus just trying to save everyone, which you can't do. I hope that answers your question, but that's how I did it. Yeah. And the big meaty pieces of content, I mean, I forget what you had said. You had told me... you like a podcast episode or maybe a book could be you know, sliced and diced. You say sliced and diced into a certain number of pieces of content. I forget how many it was, but it's a lot. So can you elaborate on that further?
1: Yeah. So typically a podcast episode could be sliced and diced into probably 50 smaller pieces of what we would call cobblestone. And a book, I mean, gosh, you could get a year's worth of content out of a book. Okay. So what does that mean? All right. So this episode, when we're finished, and whether this is part of your process or not, but just for your audience's sake, you know, you could certainly take the transcript. And each transcript from like a 45-minute episode, that's about five or six thousand words. Okay. So a big piece of cobblestone, in fact, you could argue that it's a cornerstone, you could take that, you could transform it, and that becomes a chapter in a book. So okay, that's one piece of transformation. Mm-hmm. Well, the typical blog post. Google-friendly blog post is 800 to 1,000 words. Well, if you have a transcript of 6,000 words, maybe that's three, four, five blog posts. Awesome. Well, if each blog post is 800 to 1,000 words, you know, a pretty decent email out to your audience, 150 to 200 words. So each blog post could be cut into quarters and produce four emails. Each of those emails could be repurposed into a LinkedIn post. Each LinkedIn post has a maximum of 1,300 characters. Well, each email could simply become another LinkedIn post. So all of a sudden, without even trying, the transcript becomes four blog posts. Each blog post becomes four emails. Each email becomes a LinkedIn post. And holy bananas, we're up to several dozen pieces of content without even breaking a sweat. Off of one single episode, then you take three episodes. you know, you do this, I think, weekly, your show. Yeah. You take three episodes of similar sort of theme, if you will, but maybe non-competitive guests. in those three episodes, you knit those together, now you have an ebook, which is, if you're doing a weekly podcast, that's 52 episodes. So you do that consistently. That's 18 ebooks a year. That's a pretty impressive resource library that people can come to, you know, interact with, give you an email address, and now your list is growing at a pretty steady clip, right? So that's just real quick examples of how you can take Cornerstone that you're doing at a consistent cadence and how that creates the
0: cobblestones pretty easily. You're continually teaching me stuff. The ebook idea was tremendous. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. I can do that. So again, thank you for helping and shedding some light other than a podcast, because you, you, I went through this exercise with you, you said, okay, do you like to speak or do you like to write? Mm-hmm. So other than a podcast and maybe a blog, other examples that you can give the listeners in terms of the cornerstone, the meaty piece of content that we can use as a starting point.
1: Sure. Gosh, it could be. So let's think about that, about the, do you like to talk first, right? Yeah. You're smartly recording video here, mm-hmm. right? So great. And video is sort of like the highest sort of tier- of flexibility, if you will, the content, right? Because here you can slice and dice this into audio snippets. It can be the full length episode. It can be then a video series. So when we're thinking about big pieces of cornerstone content, a video series on YouTube, amazing, right? A full length podcast. Awesome. You could take the blog posts, you know, over the course of a year, compile those, and now you have a book. Amazing. You can hire a third-party research firm. So our research partner is a company called Audience Audit. And every year, we commission a study that we think is going to be helpful to agency owners. That's our audience here. And so we have annual research that we slice and dice. Now, that gets more into the kind of writing realm. However, where this comes back to the speaking piece, like I mentioned before, is we deliver research results in a webinar through a series of podcasts and all of that kind of stuff in order to get that out to our audience and then they can download the executive summary so those are sort of kind of the biggest pieces of speaking and then also let's not forget probably the biggest one as it relates to technically speaking is literally being on stage speaking right so when you have this authority position when you've planted your flag You'll be invited to speak at conferences. You'll be invited to be on other people's stages, guest on other people's shows like I am doing with yours right now. Mm -hmm. So that's the speaking realm. The writing realm, this is where like, if you're going to do a blog, boy, does it have to be not only prolific, but it's got to be provocative. I do not mean offensive, but it needs to be provocative. It needs to be like, wait, what? What did he just say? And they want to lean into it because it sounds so interesting. Right. So if you're gonna be a blogger, there's so much competition, way more than there was 20 years ago. Then it really has to be provocative. Again, not offensive, but it's got to stop somebody in their tracks of like, oh, they want to lean in and learn more. So writing blog posts, sure. And then of course, like writing a book, the research project, those are more, you know, written pieces of big cornerstone content.
0: Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that. I go back to the comment you made about the Edelman study. Mm -hmm. I would have thought, no way. People trust the celebrities more than the industry experts, yeah, right. but it's true. I've seen the report. You showed it to me. That just goes to show you that you're like, hey, this is so important for you to become the industry expert. Now you're helping your clients find their right fit clients. I know what that means, but can you maybe just elaborate a little bit for them? What does that actually mean? Right fit clients?
1: Mm. Well, I'll answer that, but first let me give you sort of the litmus test. Everyone listening to you right now knows absolutely what a wrong fit client feels like. It sucks. It feels like a whole lot of not awesome. It yeah. feels like, oh my gosh, every time I turn around, they're asking me something or they're asking me for something that's not in scope. They're asking me to add something in at my cost. They're calling me at all hours of the night, sending me texts on holidays, during my vacation when they know that I'm on vacation with my family, needing ungrateful we all know and oh by the way not profitable we all know what a wrong fit client feels like Mm -hmm. the right fit client is obviously the psychological and physical opposite of what a wrong fit is but more specifically it's more about you knowing who they are than how they sort of behave for you so here's what i mean by that like they're in your niche you understand their psychographics you understand their demographics You understand how to connect with their head and with their heart. They're in the same pond that you're already swimming in. And you're swimming in the right pond because you got clear about the niche. The stories that you have to tell are super helpful to them, right? Because they're like, oh, wow, that's a meaningful story. You don't have to change it because you're in the right pond. You're in the right niche, right? And they, because you understand psychographics and demographics and that aligns with you Mm -hmm. and also – They have a willingness to pay whatever it is that you want to charge, and you can be profitable doing that work. That's right, Fit.
0: I love it. I also got a kick out of a whole lot of not awesome. We've
1: all felt it. Yes. When I said that, you thought of somebody, didn't you?
0: Yeah, like more than one person.
1: We've all had the experience.
0: Yeah. That's important to understand as much as who you want, who you don't want.
1: Amen.
0: Another exercise that you helped me with when I went through this with you and Chris was like, Hey, let's define who we don't want and get clear on that as well. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, no, no. I was just agreeing with you. Yes. Okay,
0: good. You get bonus points for agreeing with me, (laughs) by the way. I only have the holy bananas tick scores only two so far. So we got a a, a little bit of time left in the interview. That's his tagline. It's awesome. I come to predictive, right? And you have an awesome team. I've worked with your entire team. You guys are just amazing people. Right fit everything the the way I view it. The stuff that you're talking about, you make it sound so easy, but this is not easy to Mm. uncover this stuff, right? So can you maybe give us a high level about how you're helping clients get to this point? Like what's kind of the sequence, if you will?
1: Mm. Sure. So, let me give you the sequence. Let me answer it this way. Let me give you the sequence of sort of the three problems that need to be solved and then how to solve them. So, oftentimes, regardless of what industry our clients might be in, we see this pattern. I mean, we serve agencies and strategic consultants. I mean, that's our audience that we serve. But regardless, the three sort of situations or problems I'm going to give you are industry agnostic. So, oftentimes, Not oftentimes, we see these three things. First one is I don't know who to sell to. So, like if I was talking to a prospective client and I said, okay, let's assume that you're in a cash flow crunch and you need to get that next new client, who would you sell to? More often than not, the answer is I don't know. So, not sure who to sell to. First problem that needs to be solved. Second problem is even if I knew who, I don't know what I'm going to try to sell to them. I don't know what. I'm going to sell, and I don't know what I'm going to price that. So what is an issue? Yep. And the third is, even if I know the who and I know what I'm going to sell, I don't really know how I'm going to do it. The pitch, the presentation, the process, the proposal, the this, the that, the other thing, who's going to open the door? When do I commit? Like all of those things, the three roles of the sales team, the SDR, the setter, the closer, it's all a little bit ambiguous. And sometimes we hit the tail on the donkey, we pin the tail on the donkey, and most of the times we don't. Mm-hmm. So the how it's going to get done is ambiguous. Now, how predictive helps clients in with those three things, you know, your audience can certainly download these free frameworks that we have. So if they go to predictive ROI and super easy website addresses, if they go to predictive hoo slash who, they'll be able to download our who framework. And there's a video training there in full transparency about how to do it, like how to fill out the who framework is what I meant. Okay. So predictiveroicom ROI.com slash who, predictive slash predictive what, predictiveroicom slash how. And each of those who, what, hows, there's a free framework that they can download. And there's a 15, 16 minute training that I've recorded for each of those. So there's like 45 minutes of free training and fill out the
0: frameworks and put it into practice. Holy bananas. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Guys, you got to go download this stuff. Okay. Because look, I've been through this too. And I, as you write it down, they'll like, yep. Who do I sell to? What and how to do it. Right. And it's a problem for, you just said it, it's a problem for a lot of business owners. Mm-hmm. People who are, maybe they have an idea for a business and they just get stuck in. Well, I don't know who to sell to. And then I certainly don't know what to sell and how to deliver it. So he just gave you 45 minutes of how to get through that exercise. Super awesome, Stephen. Thank you a bunch for that. Let me ask you this question. 14 years in business, predictive. What would you say would be maybe a lesson or two or, th- or how many ever you want to share? that come top of mind. What have you learned as a business owner that you could share?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, the list, <laughs> the list is long. Yeah. So I think maybe I'll answer the question this way and then happy to explore that further however you'd like. And it's a lesson that I received. From my most influential mentor in my life. And his name was Peter Marinidis. And Peter was born in Istanbul, Turkey in 1902, at a time that it was not awesome to be born in Istanbul, Turkey as a Greek male. And because the Greeks and the Armenians and a number of other ethnicities, there was a lot of ethnic cleansing going on that was sanctioned by the Ottoman Empire. And so Peter's father one day didn't come home from work. Peter was eight years old. And his father was hung in the streets or whacked behind a shed, or no one ever found out it. And so Peter, at the ripe old age of eight, became the man of the house and dropped out of the third grade to take care of his mom and his two younger siblings. And he knitted it together with a smile on his face. And he did. And he had this dream. It was sparked at that time that he was going to make his way to America someday, somehow, some way. But he wanted to live the American dream. And when he was 18, he got that shot and holy bananas. His ship had come in, literally, he took a boat and wound up in the United States, made his way to Canton, Ohio, just like lots of other Greek immigrants did, worked a couple of days in the steel mill and said, yeah, not so much, ain't for me. And started washing dishes and cutting vegetables on the night shift at a downtown Canton, Ohio restaurant. And he did that for six years until he could learn a little bit of the language. One of the day cooks sort of put his arm around him and said, hey, Pete, you know, take my old knife set. You can wind up on the day shift and make a little bit more money. And after six years, he had saved enough money to start his own restaurant. It was 1926. Not the best time to strike out on this entrepreneurial venture. A few years later, we we're in the midst of the Great Depression and he gave away more soup than he ever sold. And years later, people asked Peter, like, why did you give away so much soup during the depression? he said, Jesus is coming back someday. I don't know what he's going to look like. So I'm just going to be good to everybody. And that sort of fit his business plan that no matter how hard it was, no matter how down and out he might have been, he never quit. And he believed that if you take care of your customers, they will take care of you. And after 42 years as a restaurateur and owning three different restaurants, that's exactly what happened. His customers took care of him. And he had this amazing, career. Got married to the woman of his dreams, had four amazing kids, 10 grandkids along the way, and they've all been business owners. And through all of that, this lesson that he taught me was never, ever quit, ever. And so that photo that is behind me on the wall is Peter standing behind his lunch counter at the Ideal Restaurant in downtown Canton, Ohio, circa 1926. And I know Peter really well because Peter's my grandfather. One of the lessons that I have learned as a business owner, and the reason why that picture is behind me is because, yeah, sometimes I'm working at two o'clock in the morning, either because I haven't gone to bed or I got up that early. And sometimes I don't want to send out that proposal because I'm like, oh, gosh, I'd rather just go do something else. Or do I really need to finish that chapter tonight? I know my publisher said I need to get it done, but do I really... Or I know my team needs this thing, but I'd really not like to do that. My pop or papu, which is Greek for grandfather, he made all of the sacrifices so that I had the privilege to do what it is that I do today. And he never, ever quit. Owning a business for 14 years, on the surface, that sounds lovely. And it might give the impression that there's nothing challenging in the business. We've got all the things figured out and that couldn't be further from the truth. We've got big problems. We've got big challenges. We've got big goals. There are good days and bad days. There are plenty of days where I'm like, why in the world am I doing this? But I will never, ever, ever quit.
0: Wow. Wow. That was good stuff. Good stuff, Steve. I did not know. I did not know that. I I was just so engaged with that story, and then I didn't know that he's your grandfather. So what a super share. Super share. And there's nothing to add to that, really. I mean, and you're 100% right. And I thank you for being vulnerable with your business. I mean, it's not all roses and rainbows. It's not easy. There are days where I want to quit. There are days where I've thought about cashing it in. And I just remember, you know, I remember what I promised my son is I'm never, he's never going to say those words to me again. Dad, I'm afraid when you leave. So, I mean, you have to have that something, right? And that's that something for you, isn't it, Stephen?
1: It is. My mom was visiting here from Ohio. As you know, I live in Wisconsin. She was here a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually, I guess, because my wife and I, our 16-year-old daughter was on stage for the drama production this season at Luther High School for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And so we thought it'd be cool if my mom came to visit to watch. And my mom and I were driving. I was taking her back to the airport in Minneapolis. And I said to her, said, so, do you remember the story of when pop bought the house, the house that she grew up in, in Canton, Ohio? And she goes, Yeah. she goes and i know that he bought it at a sheriff's sale it was during the depression somebody couldn't pay the taxes and this and that or whatever and my grandfather walked in and paid cash for this house during the depression and he paid five thousand dollars in cash for this house there's a couple of things that are remarkable about that several things one he managed to save five thousand dollars through the great depression Credible. second his pricing strategy at the restaurant was soup and sandwich for a nickel. So it's not like he was rolling in the dough. So he was very frugal. Third, present value of money. You take the $5,000 in 1926 and you run that calculation. This is a little bit old because I did it like four years ago, but I was curious. Like, What's the present value of $5,000 in 1926? That means that my grandfather during the depression saved the present value equivalent of $76,235. That's remarkable.
0: Remarkable. Five nickel soup and sandwich. Unbelievable. Yeah. Such a great story. Such a great story. Such a great share. Steven, this has been tremendous. I think that's where we wrap up. I really do. This has just been phenomenal. That's uh, inspiration times a million. And I did get three holy bananas out of the episode. So. Plus, I added one in, so that was my goal. In all seriousness, no. I mean, you continue to teach me. Just you've been one of my mentors, so thank you. I know Mm -hmm. I keep saying that. And I know the listeners are going to get tremendous value out of this. Any final parting thoughts before we go? Anything that I didn't ask you you'd like to share?
1: It probably seems a little bit cliche. And I think sometimes cliches are cliches because they're used over and over and over again. Not because they're easy or whatever, but it's because they're true. And I think it's this is that we all get one crack at this. And, you know, whether you want to think of like, is this how I want to spend this day? Or if this was the last day of my life, or if this was my last week, how would I spend it? However, that kind of sits for you, whatever, you know, we all think about it a little bit differently. But the hard reality is we get one crack at this. Nobody's getting out of this thing alive. So we get one crack at this. If what you're doing today Isn't truly what you want to be doing for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, then stop doing it and start doing what it is that really revs you up, that really gets the juices flowing, that really pushes your creativity, that really makes you uncomfortable in a good way, and that is going to force you to grow. So stop doing what you're doing now if it isn't those things. You get one crack at this. So why in the world would you want to waste this amazing God-given gift that is called life on something that you don't have to waste it on, like invest it towards something that you really want to do?
0: Hmm. Amazing. Don't tolerate your life. Steven, thank you. That's a mic drop moment. So grateful to have you on. Look forward to this episode airing. Everyone's going to love it. Everyone have an excellent, excellent day and go take your shot. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've interviewed a lot of people. And that maybe was one of the coolest endings of any show that I've ever been associated with. And I hope you felt the same way. And if you did, I want to hear from you. As always, I want your feedback. I encourage your feedback. You can email me at Brian at W2prisonbreak.com. That's Brian with an I. And I just want to hear what your biggest takeaway was, any action items that you're going to take as a result of listening to this episode with Steven Wessner, who again has helped me tremendously over the last several years. And I can't say enough about how much I enjoyed interviewing him and how grateful I am that I'm associated with this guy. I hope you saw the value in the episode and I look forward to seeing you, chat with you next week.